This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. contact. We're marking the anniversary of the overturning of Roe v. Wade by revisiting a conversation with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. We talked last year right after the Supreme Court decision, and she told me about the history of the reproductive justice movement. So reproductive justice is an expansive and revolutionary vision that is about really empowering all of us, but especially the people most impacted by multiple systems of oppression, to have autonomy over what happens with our capacity to create, what happens in terms of our ability to define and create the relationships that we have, the families that we want. Plus, we get the inside scoop on what it was like for Dr. Gums, who was a teenager, while the movement was forming all around her. When I was a teenage writer growing up in Atlanta, I went to Mother House to the basement to lead a writing workshop. That was actually the first time that as a writer facilitator I ever was paid. This is Making Contact. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Yeah, I'm having a really good day so far. Excellent. Over in Durham, North Carolina, right? That's right. What about you? I um I was thinking like I know she's going to ask me that question and like <laughs> <laughs> what do I say, you know, considering everything. And and also this week my son had pneumonia. Oh no. So we've been dealing with like 17-month-old baby <sighs> fevers and ER trips in the last week. So it's been a little nuts. No, that's not fun. But he's better today. And that makes it that makes it good. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um, totally fangirling over here. And I'm going to go ahead and read this bio that I sort of like pieced together because there's so much incredible, amazing stuff that you do, work that you do that um, I wanted to to highlight some things, sure. but I mean, there's just no way to get to all of it. Like it's so <laughs> incredible. Um, so I hope you like this bio that I put together. Um, Alexis Pauline Gums is a queer, black troublemaker and black feminist love evangelist and an aspirational cousin to all sentient beings founder or the co-founder of several community organizations focused on everything from ending gendered violence to land trusts to healing work and all things media. She's a writer with work published in several outlets, five books already born, and one in gestation called The Eternal Life of Audre Lorde. She's a winner of many awards, including the Barnard College Outstanding Young Alumna Award, a winning award in nonfiction for her most recent book, Undrowned Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals, and many, many others. I'm not done. <laughs> Alexis is a teacher, making access to regular folks a priority. 
She founded Brilliance Remastered, an online network and series of retreats and online intensives serving community accountable intellectuals and artists. I have to ask, does this mean our listeners? Yes. Okay, great. So so folks can <laughs> go and uh, get lessons from you via your website. So it's very exciting. Um, it seems that the uniting theme of all of her work is a passion for the issues that impact oppressed communities and an intimate knowledge of the resilience of movements led by Black, Indigenous, working-class women and queer people of color. What do you think? That's right. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Is there anything I missed? Anything you wanted to add? No, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about things, but I like that bio. Thank you. Okay, great. Today, we're going to be talking about the book, one of your books, one of your babies that um, you co-edited with China Martins and Maya Williams. Um, it, this book is really very truly dear to me. Like, it's my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book is Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines. And if it's okay, I wanted to read some praise from Alice Walker. Oh, I love that. Revolutionary mothering love on the front lines is juicy, gutsy, vulnerable, and very brave. These women insist on having their children in a society that does not welcome them, in a world that is rapidly falling apart. Their dream for their children, based on their love of them, encompasses the sorrow and the joy that mothers everywhere, whether human, animal, or plant, feel at this time. A radical vision, many radical visions of how to mother in a time of resistance and of pain. Um. There's a beautiful preface in the book by uh, Professor Loretta Ross that it gives it a sort of a rich, almost like sensorial context to the formation of the reproductive justice movement. And in a minute, I am going to ask you to tell to tell me the birth story of the book. Mm-hmm. But first, I was wondering if you would be could tell me and our listeners, the birth story of the reproductive justice movement? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so the reason that we are so honored that Loretta Ross could have agreed to write a preface for revolutionary mothering is that we definitely know that that work wouldn't have been possible for us, imaginable even outside of the context of a reproductive justice movement. And Loretta Ross is one of the founding mothers of that movement. So reproductive justice is an expansive and revolutionary vision that is about really empowering all of us, but especially the people most impacted by multiple systems of oppression, to have autonomy over what happens with our capacity to create what happens in terms of our ability to define and create the relationships that we have, the families that we want, the destinies that we want for our own bodies. And its its expansiveness is in some way the response of feminists of color, including Loretta Ross, to what they saw as some of the limitations to the idea of reproductive rights, in quotes. And so they wanted to create something that really spoke to the multiple ways 
that our capacity as beings that are part of a species that can proliferate, that needs each other to survive, that lives and relates in units of community beyond um, the question of access to abortion or not access to abortion. And also that takes into account the histories of um, coerced sterilization. It takes into account histories of experimentation with birth control drugs on impoverished women in Puerto Rico. All of these different truth-telling imperatives are part of what makes the reproductive justice movement exist. I love an intellectual. (laughs) I have to tell you that. I mean, you know, I'm a nurse and I don't know if you know other nurses, but, you know, we are very like of the earth. Um, And so like it is so stimulating to talk to somebody who's kind of of the clouds, you know what I mean? Like in a a lovely way, because I'm thinking, tell me the birth story. And I'm and I'm thinking it was 1994 and these women (laughs) gathered in Chicago and they ate at Chipotle or, you know, and and then, you know, and then. Right. They went back to the South and they formed Sister Song, right? Yes. Also, there's a really important essay in an anthology called The Color of Violence that Incite Women of Color Against Violence published where Loretta Ross writes her definition of reproductive justice, which I would refer everyone to because that is the, for me, that's the best way to hear that origin story aside from if you get, if you're very blessed and get to just listen to Loretta Ross or Billy Avery themselves. So there, there's um, Sister Song. was really the space to say, like to sing what reproductive justice is and to roll that out into the world. And Loretta Ross was the founding executive director of Sister Song. Mm. And the Sister Song conferences, the Let's Talk About Sex conferences became this catalyzing movement space. One of the things that they did that I love is that they had uh, mother-daughter fellowships to go to the conference. And so my mother and I went to Sister Song in Chicago. That is so beautiful. Together. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think that at the core of reproductive justice is, and I've heard Loretta Ross recently talk about this as like a reproductive futurity, is that it is intergenerational. It lives in intergenerationality and they have moved that way the entire time. So in Atlanta, um, there's a place called Mother House. And this was the, it's really a house. It was the headquarters for Black Women's Health Project. And just to give a corner to the story, which really probably only I can tell you, um, when I was a teenage writer growing up in Atlanta, I went to Mother House to the basement to lead a writing workshop and facilitate the creation of a newsletter, like a newsletter about sex for the teenagers and um, other, actually they weren't, I was a teenager. They were like children um, who were part of the summer program that Black Women's Health Project had as part of its initiative for there to be intergenerational conversations about sex and profoundly comprehensive sex education. And so that was actually the first time that as a writer facilitator, I ever was paid to facilitate a writing workshop, Um, which to me keys into this idea of 
reproductive justice movement generating our creativity in all these multiple ways, right? Um, and then the children, who many of them were children of, of the same reproductive justice movement workers, just were having these incredible conversations about sexuality and gender and fluidity and justice and autonomy and consent, like all, all of these things. And so it was a blessing to be able to have an intergenerational view on that from a young age. It's so cool that you had such a front row seat. Yeah. And like how neat that it it really ties into the book, I feel like, because a lot of, of the book that, that you co-edited is um, talking about the actual work of mothering as revolutionary work itself. And so this idea that your mother was taking you to these places, she was raising a revolutionary. I mean, look at you now, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like she did the work, you know? Um, And now look at you like putting it out into the world in even bigger, further ways. What's the, what's the birth story of this book? Oh, yay. Okay. So it goes back to a internet love story. Um, my would-be future co-editor, Maya, and I met on the internet. And I think we both have been making zines for a long time. We blog, and I think we found each other that way. And Maya was Maya was wanting to use a workbook I had made with these women in South Africa who had taken over an abandoned factory to create their own school with their children. And I was like, what? Who is this person? You know, I was like, this is what you do. <laughs> like, and but so Maya is an international human rights worker and journalist. And she, while we were cultivating our friendship, she was traveling all over the world and she was organizing with mothers. She was organizing with moms who were part of the Zapatista movement. She was organizing with moms who were part of the Arab Spring uprising. She she was um organizing in Palestine and, and in all of these spaces, she was telling me what was going on and the revolution. She was finding the moms. She was finding the moms. Yeah. And she already had a, a really clear understanding that that is revolutionary. And then she started to create this zine called Revolutionary Motherhood. Meanwhile, I am in the archives researching. I'm working on my PhD and um my dissertation is called We Can Learn to Mother Ourselves, The Queer Survival of Black Feminism. And so I'm looking at everything that these feminists of color are saying about mothering in the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s. And so I'm looking through Audre Lorde's papers. I'm looking through June Jordan's papers. I'm looking through um, finding these uh, Azalea and the Salsa Soul Sisters Gazette and, you know, all of these out-of-print publications that are basically ancestors to our zines that we're creating. And I'm telling her what I find, right? And so she's like, listen to to what happened in Gaza. And I'm like, listen to what June Jordan said in 1977, you know? And at at some point we were like, okay, this conversation that we're having is actually a real conversation. Like we, we are meant to put together this archive and legacy of a revolutionary approach to mothering and contemporary people who are living this and practicing it right now. So we should create an anthology. This is, a, this is our idea. And then we met China 
Martins, who would who there would be co-editor um, at the Allied Media Conference. And China is China's like almost a generation older than Maya and I. Maya and I are pretty close in age. And China is is like Zine Zine's forerunner. Like she and she was the first person to write mothering zines zines about being a mother about raising a kid on welfare she was really the first and uh the future generation is the name of her zine and and so we were like yes you know like this is this is our trifecta dream team at the beginning we thought we were going to call it this bridge called my baby and when we sent out our call for submissions that's what we said that we're creating an anthology called this bridge called my baby and you know so many people sent it essays and poems and stories. And we were like, whoa, this is amazing. And we started this process of the intensive work of creating an anthology. And um, it took like seven years before it actually existed in print. Anyway, so the the reason that we created this book was because we we really felt that there was something to be said about, again, intergenerationally, what it means to really just shine light on a revolutionary approach to mothering, right? Because we're very clear, like, we're not creating that. It's something very, very old. Mm -hmm. It's really important to us that, um, I mean, we were like over the moon ready to pass out when Alice Walker wrote that blurb because her idea of democratic motherism it talks about mothering as a form of being in the world and really as the ethical form of being in the world and that it can include everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a line in that essay where she says, mothering is an instinct, yes, but it's also a skill that can be taught. And she believes that everyone should learn the skills associated with mothering because that's what we all need in order to actually shift into a life-giving sustaining relationship to community, planet, life itself. And so the deepest thing that we wanted, we wanted recognition for all of this revolutionary labor that we're naming as revolutionary mothering that has been happening for generations and without which certainly the three of us wouldn't exist as who we are or maybe at all. And it's possible to think that maybe life wouldn't exist, right? There are these constant acts of life-giving and care that are transformative and, and revolutionary because they exist right up against these forms of repression that have seemingly done everything to eradicate them. Wow, that's quite a birth story. <laughs> yes, thank you for asking. Well, I have to tell you, like, the reason why I, I reached out to you recently about about doing this interview and talking about this book that was published in 2016. You know, it's not like there's like a time, a timely stamp on this or whatever, right. except that there is. <laughs> right. Because I I have to tell you, I was raised in central Indiana by lesbian pastors. So yeah. Protestant, right? So while I don't practice religion anymore, um, I have this tendency that I think is residual from my raising that is during times of stress or confusion, like to go to text. 
They you know, Protestants love their Bible study. I got to tell you that. I don't know if you knew that, but <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Protestants uh, love their Bible study. So um, I don't really turn to the Bible, but I, I go to my bookshelf and I feel like all of our different states and communities are, are pretty much trying to decide who they are. Yeah. I mean, I have not heard the word abortion so much ever in my life before being discussed openly. So I want to know, are there other things that you think people could be reading right now as they're kind of grappling with whatever is happening in their communities? Oh, oh, what a great question. I mean, of course, people we've mentioned, right? Alice Walker is somebody who to always read, but I would say especially her essays. When we think about abortion, she's somebody who's been very open about the fact that this is a part of her experience and her early politicization as a young woman, a young college student. And she has this expansive perspective that I draw on over and over again. So read more Alice Walker. June Jordan, definitely. So, and I'll just say the the essay that we were so honored to print in Revolutionary Mothering is called The Creative Spirit in Children's Literature. And this is the place where June Jordan makes the proclamation that love is life force. And this is a talk that she gave at a conference about children's literature at Berkeley in California in 1977. And the first sentence is just, love is life force. That's it, the end. <laughs> like That's everything right there. And she goes on to offer this incredible, expansive definition of what creativity is, what creation is, and how it exists within all species. And then she talks about the accountability of what our intergenerational conversation is, right? So what's at stake in children's literature for June Jordan is what is the possible conversation we can have between generations and she just goes deep into like what is it what are the fears that that brings up in adults what are what, what's disrespectful about not talking about certain things with young people and and before we get away from it I do want to if it's okay I want to read like just a very short piece from this um essay that you're making reference to if it's okay mm-hmm. June Jordan says and it seems to me that love that is serious and tender concern to respect the nature and the spontaneous purpose of other things, other people, will make manifest a peaceable order among us, such that fear, conflict, competition, waste, and environmental sacrifice will have no place. That passage means a lot. It's like, that's everything. Like, what else is there to say? That's everything, right? It's everything that we need. Like, we would do this one thing. Yeah, we would do this one thing. We could just like live like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, I can never get too much of June Jordan. So um, I turn, I turn to so many. I turn to Angela Davis. I turn to my dear sister, Adrienne Marie Brown. I turn to... Walida E. Marisha. I turn, of course, to Loretta Ross. Um, so I'm a um, creative writing editor at the journal Feminist Studies. And there's a resource on the Feminist Studies website that in response to the Supreme Court decision, 
that we decided to create. And it kind of chronicles because, because this is an issue that is in the journal all the time. Um, but it chronicles an archive going back. It's 50 years that this journal has existed. Um, you can look at that to give kind of a, a long view of how feminist thinkers have been writing about this over time. Um, there's so much, there's so much reading to do. We're jumping in to remind you that you are listening to Making Contact and an interview with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Visit us online at radioproject.org where you can join the conversation with a comment. And now back to the show. And we've talked about reading. We've talked about holding workshops. Is there anything else that you're doing um, to find hope right now or kind of um, manage yourself and your community? Yeah, I think the other things on a smaller scale has just been more, more reaching out, mm. you know, like I, and I have kind of had to get over it. And even me being like, oh, nobody wants to really hear from me or, oh, I can't, you know, like, let me stay within the boundary of not uh, reaching out even to people I do know or like my own friends, you know, like that's, that's been a thing that I've struggled with. Mm. And now I see, I'm like, oh, that's complicit in the forms of isolation mm -hmm. that those who would harm all of us want to exist so that we don't mm. acknowledge our collective power, right? And, and act accordingly. And so wow. that's definitely been a way I am, you know, I am not a nurse, but I'm like a major distributor of just raspberry leaf to people, <laughs> you know, like it's just, just um, yes. I'm like, this will help, yes. you know, I have my little peppermint raspberry leaf your tinctures yeah. and your yeah your witchy the tea bruise. you know all, all of that and yeah and also just that practice for myself you know I mean mm. I, it's tied to what Loretta Ross is talking about this legacy mm -hmm. of us taking care of ourselves and each other and learning what that takes in relationship with the natural world mm-hmm mm taking care of yourself is revolution mm -hmm. taking care of your children is revolution um, as a mom of human babies, it doesn't always feel that way because it's, it is work that is unseen and unappreciated by capitalism completely. Okay. Um, and so it, it, you know, to all you moms out there, <laughs> keep your head up <laughs> like you're doing it yes. And to all the people who are doing mothering work that isn't to human babies. It's important work too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that that's one of the things that our dream for revolutionary mothering includes it's to say mm -hmm. that the exact isolation that you're talking about where capitalism pretends to not value the labor of mothering but it mm -hmm. needs it it needs it, it at requires the same it, time doesn't it right doesn't it um that is what we want to shine a light on all of those acts of care the disgusting you know <laughs> someone's spitting up on you you know all those things are happening those are, those have such revolutionary potential. Mm. And what would a world be like where we valued that in such a way that the actual labor of it wasn't, wasn't isolated either. 
right? Mm -hmm. And that is, in fact, dangerous to capitalism. Um, It's certainly Mm -hmm. dangerous to any system that would want to disempower anyone, but particularly disempower women, because, uh, yeah, there's too much love. There's too much love and creativity. And when we collaborate on it. That's some powerful stuff. That's it. Love is life force. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. All right. Well, yes, yeah. So thank you so much for having me. I, I, It's great to meet you. And I also just want to honor what you're doing, how you're using this platform, how you're using your own perspective and expertise to create this really supportive and transformative space. I'm grateful for you. Wow. Thank you for saying that. I'm grateful for you. <laughs> you have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for Making Contact today. I've been your host, Amy Gastelum. If you've enjoyed this episode, please review us on Apple Podcasts and share it on social media. On Instagram, we are Making Contact Radio Project. On Twitter, we are Making Underscore Contact. To learn more about us and to access other episodes for free, you can visit us at radioproject.org. Until next week. The views expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services.